Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk, back from a short hiatus. I'm Matt Zuckerman at the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about organophosphate poisoning. This is going to cover a broad uh, range of all the way from uh, chemical weapons and terrorist attacks to pesticide exposures and even some medications that are commonly prescribed. I'll also get a good chance to talk about some uh, physiology. So uh, all that and more on this episode of Talks Talk. Welcome again to another edition of Talks Talk. This is Adam Darnabid. Today we're going to discuss organophosphates, and we have with us this afternoon Steve Bird, Dr. Steve Bird, the Vice Chair of Education at the University of Massachusetts. And we selected him today to come join us to talk about this topic because he has a special interest in it. He received a grant from Counteract specifically NINDS to help him research and help our nation prepare for a possible organophosphate exposure. Steve? Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And I'm Matt Zuckerman, a lowly fellow at the UMASH Division of Toxicology. You failed to mention I'm also faculty in the Division of Toxicology and the Program Director for Emergency Medicine. Yes, I think he also has a mug that says World's Best Dad. So. Oh. It's hard to scroll down to the bottom of your emails to find out exactly what you do. Touche. <laughs> I think that's what brings us here today is to talk about organophosphates and and why are these important? Why do these matter to us? And I, I think you might have a, a at least a clinical relevance to this or, or can give us an example of when you have seen this in your in your career in medicine. Sure. I've actually seen quite a few of these. So I do basic research in organophosphorus poisoning or OP poisoning, but I've also done clinical research in Sri Lanka and seen cases here. And so one memorable case was a, here in Massachusetts, was a professional pesticide applicator. It involves licensing. So he had the ability to purchase highly toxic pesticides that you can't buy over the counter and in large quantities. And after a dispute with his wife, he ingested a highly lipophilic OP called diazinon. He presented within about 45 minutes to the emergency department with bradycardia, vomiting all over, massive diarrhea, and the most profound diaphoresis I think I've ever seen, where no ECG or monitoring leads would stick to his skin at all. He also had marked muscle fasciculations and uh, was rapidly intubated and treated. And the interesting thing also is because the diazinon is so lipophilic, it leached from his fat stores for weeks. And was he was hospitalized for weeks, extubated, walking around. But if we turned off the antidotes, he would have recurrence of his symptoms, which was really remarkable. 
but I really kind of like that idea that, you know, if the ivy fell out or if he was in the cafeteria and, it, you know, the alarm was beeping, all of a sudden he'd, he'd get sick again. Yeah. Because he was fat. <laughs> because of his fat, not because he's fat. Now, did he report that, or was that something that, um, did he report the ingestion, or was it just obvious to whoever saw him? Both. It, he told us what it was, but it was obvious from his symptoms what he had that he had some acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. That's right. Good save. Yeah, thank you. Well, that leads to the point, and one of the reasons we're going to discuss this today is that organophosphates, as a class of compounds, is kind of a lot more present in our society than we anticipated. And that being said, your case brings up a important theme in emergency medicine, emergency toxicology, that people self-poison with whatever's close to them, and the poisoning and the patterns of exposure kind of mirror what substances are easily available to them and to their environment. And I think this was a good example of him having that close. But at the same time, you know, overseas where an agricultural community has these substances in abundance, we you could see many more exposures. I'm guessing our overseas listeners would have much more experience than us in central Massachusetts in that regard. That's absolutely right. In fact, when I was in Sri Lanka, the, just shortly before I was, um, arrived there my first time, they had seen 24 OP poison, OP poison patients in one day at one hospital. Overall, the burden of OP poisoning really is borne by the developing world. There are roughly 3 million people poisoned each year with OP pesticides, according to the World Health Organization, and about 300,000 deaths worldwide. And you contrast that with the United States, where there are a few thousand exposures, but one or two or three or four handfuls of deaths, so less than 20 deaths a year due to acute OP poisoning. So it really is a problem in the developing world, where they obviously have less medical measures available to, to treat these patients. Additionally, we tend to have more regulatory oversight of some of these agents in terms of needing licensing to use them and things like that. That being said, everybody, the world is getting smaller and smaller, and it seems like everyone has a cousin or an aunt who will send them something from back home that works really well to kill the rats or eggs in their house, and so we start to see some of that too. That's right. It's interesting. I think medical toxicology would be much more fa interesting or fascinating if OSHA didn't exist. Wouldn't be good for our public health, but it sure would make it interesting. But Google exists. You can get whatever you want shipped from wherever in the world and FedEx overnight. Via the internets? Yes, the internets. This new thing they have out there called the internets. We can go back to how it became more available to us or when it first came on our radar and was actually during World War II when we saw it as a chemical warfare agent, but it was discovered much sooner than that. It's, it's been known since the 1900s, the early 1900s, and it's been synthesized. But until that time, we really used nicotine as a insecticide, if I'm correct. And that's why we didn't see the use of organophosphates, because we had a perfectly suitable insecticide with nicotine. And when we stopped using nicotine as an insecticide, then there arose the need for organophosphates. And that's when we started to see increasing poisoning, increasing problems with that. Yeah, the nicotine was really a a rodenticide more than an insecticide. Uh, that's true. But OPs have been around, as you said, for you know around 100 years. And there was also a famous case 
involving TOCP triorthocresyl phosphate, which was an it was an, an organophosphorus agent, but not a does not cause OP poisoning. That was used as a diluent in ginger jake, which was a uh, alcoholic drink in prohibition. And these patients who ingested this develop a severe, progressive, and irreversible peripheral neuropathy called ginger jake leg paralysis. And if you, there actually is a song about ginger jake leg paralysis as well. So the OPs have other effects other than the acute things that we'll talk about as well. Yeah, I think a popular uh, uh, popular press incident of that also is that one of the characters in Water for Elephants develops sort of ginger jake disease and, and develops the uh, uh, neuromuscular symptoms. Is that a movie? A uh, movie and a book. Oh. I think Oprah recommended it. I'll have to watch Oprah some more. You know, and we understand it not just as a insecticide or as a weapons of mass destruction. We'll, you know, discuss both of those, but it also has clinical indications. Organophosphates as malathion, using to treat lice, it's an insecticide. Should you have insects on your body or carrying around on your hair, it'd be great to kill them, and it makes sense to use an insecticide, and malathion is one of the things we use to treat that. Yeah, there are other clinical indications for these acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. For instance, the Alzheimer's agents like denepazil is a reversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. There are agents also for myasthenia gravis, which are used. Um, we also use them as neuromuscular reversing agents in the operating room or the emergency department or ICUs as well. For those emergency medicine residents out there, you will see on in-service exam and board exam questions about the weapons of mass destruction. There are a few that we typically, well, that you need to know. Those are Sarin, Somin, and VX. There's another one called Tabun, T-A-B-U-N, or as the English say, Taboon. The thing you need to know about those three, one, VX is an oily, viscous substance, which isn't used to acutely poison, but really to deny territory. Somin is the most rapidly aging of the agents. We'll talk a little bit about aging. And sarin is the most easily weaponized and volatilized weapon of mass destruction, which was used in the Aun Shunrikyo incident in Matsumoto, Japan, and Tokyo as well. Yeah, can you, can you say that five times fast? Tokyo, Japan, Tokyo, Japan, Tokyo, Very Japan. Nice. Very nice. No, and I think the other, that's, that's uh, just to bring it back to general principle of sort of chemical exposures is there's always this balance between volatility and, and stability. And so a chemical agent or weapon that is incredibly volatile can spread throughout an area rapidly and affect lots of people. But at the same time, it's going to be so volatile um, that it's likely going to disperse rapidly, especially in a uh, sort of one well-ventilated area versus a substance that's stickier that will stay on um, surfaces longer and might be less prone to spreading everywhere, but is going to remain active for a longer period of time. And I think that's one of the reasons why it seemed like they picked the subway. The subway attack was reasonable because it's a it's an enclosed area. It's tunnels and trains. That's right. Absolutely. That would lead us right next to into the pharmacology. And one of the reasons we chose this topic is because the pharmacology is, I think, absolutely fascinating. Well, that's interesting. The OPs, there are a diverse group of drugs which have a common mechanism of action, but there are several differences. Some are 
are oxons, a phosphorus double bonded to an oxygen, those are generally immediately metabolically active and inhibit acetylcholinesterase. A large group of them are thions, phosphorus double bond to sulfur. Those are oxidized in the liver, in the P450 system, to the metabolically active oxon form. So the thions are generally not very toxic. But there's also varying lipo lipophilicity. That's hard to say a lot of times. Some of these drugs, such as diazinon, are very lipophilic and will leach from the fat stores for weeks, similar with parathion. Others, such as dichlorvos, which is an oxon and the most lethal or commonly lethal agent in China, is not lipophilic at all. So those symptoms are very quickly on and relatively quickly off. There are other differences as well, which are a little bit more esoteric, but it's important to realize that the class is chemically diverse. And I think the other thing that's important too is um, typically the most rapid way of onset in terms of exposure is going to be inhalation of an agent. You're going to absorb it through the lungs and get exposed. In a lot of these cases, there's just ingestion. So if people are drinking it, they'll absorb it. And then you can get dermal absorption also, but the dermal absorption typically can take a little longer, can't it? Generally does. And if an individual's for instance, if they're working in agriculture and that's their exposure, they have some clothes-ons which may mitigate the amount that they absorb. So there's, it is, they are absorbed through numerous routes. The most common for our purposes in toxicology is ingestion. Absolutely. And uh, these are, these agents can look very similar. I know that, um, I think it's Jason Hack at, at Brown has a great story about he trained in New York, sort of the epicenter of, of concerns about bioterrorism, and then moved to the south. And uh, within a few weeks of moving to the south, he saw a bunch of guys who came in, diaphoretic, um, uh, GI upset, uh, diarrhea, uh, looked, uh, you know, uh, terrible. And he said, oh, my God, there's been a sarin nerve gas attack in our town. And then uh, the nurse looked at him and said, no, 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 they've just been, they've been harvesting tobacco. Um, and they had gotten nicotine poisoning from the tobacco. And so knowing, uh, knowing your local exposures is always important. And it's a good thing that uh, Jason did not uh, activate the National Bioterrorist Alert Network or call the FBI on that one. <laughs> Speaking of New York, there's also historically an interesting exposure to acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, and that is trace pesitos. I kind of introduced the word, word uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. There's two classes generally. There's the organophosphorus or OP agents, which are irreversible. And there's the carbamates, which are reversible acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. But in New York, there's been several outbreaks of poisoning with what is called trace pesitos, which is aldicarb and uh, a carbamate pesticide. And these are, at least in New York, in these outbreaks have been sold illicitly in these bodegas. Um, they are, it's aldicarb distributed in these plastic baggies without labels, etc. They use it for mouse or rat infestations in their home. And trace pesitos means three little steps. And the idea is that when the rodents are exposed to this, they take three little steps and they keel over dead. Unfortunately, the same thing can happen to humans as well. But larger so, steps. Usually a little bit larger. We've been touching upon it for the past little bit the mechanism of action of these drugs and what it really does is it serves to block the degradation of acetylcholine at the synaptic terminal. So organophosphates or carbamates will block acetylcholine esterase, which cleaves the acetylcholine at the terminal and you have a buildup of acetylcholine. 
thus having a syndrome producing too much acetylcholine, which is really just overstimulation of your nervous system to that point. Yes, there's there's several different acetylcholinesterases in the body. There's the red blood cell acetylcholinesterase, which is what we typically talk about. There's plasma or butylcholinesterase, which are kind of nonspecific acetylcholinesterase. There is paraoxinase, which uh, PON1 is the gene product, which is associated with cardiovascular disease. And there's neuronal acetylcholinesterase, which we really don't have any way to measure. We use acetylcholinesterase or RBC acetylcholinesterase as a surrogate for neuronal acetylcholinesterase. But you're right. So when either the carbamates or the OPs inhibit acetylcholinesterase, you get a buildup of acetylcholine in the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And you get clinical effects, which I mentioned briefly with the patient that I had. And the mnemonic for those of you out there are either sludge or dumbbells. I actually prefer dumbbells because it talks, gives a little bit more emphasis on the pulmonary findings. Adam, can you tell me what sludge is? It's a uh, salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI emesis. I lost me on the G. I was doing so good there for a second. Some people say gastric emptying. Yeah. Right. And how about, so that really focuses on, well, that doesn't have any focus on the pulmonary components. But that's when you add the killer bees, which I always like because... It's just very cute. Whenever I do a talk on this, I'll always have little pictures of cute little bees. But the killer bees of um, uh, OP poisoning are? Bronchorrhea and bronchoconstriction? Yep, so bronchorrhea, bronchospasm, and... Bradycardia. Bradycardia, exactly. And it's probably the only time I'll ever use the word bronchorrhea ever, but it works as a bee. I I like the sludge. Just think of it as turning on the faucet of your body and stuff coming out of everywhere. Yeah, I think a good description of these patients are they are wet and gooey. I don't think I ever want to hear you say that phrase again unless you're talking about like a chocolate chip cookie. Um, <laughs> but and the other the other nice thing about this is I feel like whenever people learn a new toxidrome they always have trouble remembering it and so essentially if you have trouble it's the opposite of anticholinergic poisoning which is tachycardia, dry, um, I guess large pupils, but in theory, if you ever have trouble, just remember that there's anticholinergic, and this is effectively a cholinergic syndrome. Or, and, or I think of this differently, because I think of everything slightly differently, but having somebody drown in their own secretions, and if you remember somebody drowning in their own secretions, and it's nonspecific cholinesterase inhibitor, that's what's going on. The person is literally just secreting themselves to death. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of the perfect storm. You've got somebody who's got, um, uh, their lungs are filled with uh, secretions. Um, their lungs are uh, spasming and constricted, so they can't breathe. And at the same time, their heart just decides to slow down to practically nothing, um, which is the concerning thing. I mean, granted, somebody comes in with an upset tummy and they're vomiting. I feel bad for them, and I know that this is really bad, but really that's why they're called the killer bees, and that's, um, that's kind of that mnemonic. But you also mentioned dumbbells, so what's the dumbbells mnemonic? So, uh, diarrhea, urination, meiosis, bronchorrhea, bronchoconstriction, emesis, lacrimation, and salivation. Although I've never seen anyone die from lacrimation. 
But I think you have to include organophosphate poisoning on everybody who's lacrimating. Yeah, I, anyone who's crying in the emergency department, I always ask them if they have a career in agriculture. That's good. That's a thorough um, social history. Yeah, yeah, I get an occupational history and a rectal exam on everyone. So you're never going to miss anything. Your press gainy scores must be off the charts. They, they really are. So, I mean, thinking about that, we, we really dove into the, the clinical presentation of these patients, and that's kind of what you should be attuned to. And just another plug for being in the emergency room and being people on the front line of this, one of the ways that the nation might pick up on a suspected terrorist attack is by having the emergency room see an exceptionally high number of these patients. Like seeing one of these in central Massachusetts, I think would be an exceptionally high number. Yes, and I think that's the big distinction to make. If you see one person who has um, drunk uh, pesticide because they are depressed, then that is something to treat. If you see more than one person, um, then you really have to raise your concern for um, a public health disaster or a mass casualty exposure. If you see more than one, call me, please. And, and your phone number is? My cell phone is 508 You know, then we were talking about these patients with the uh, bronchorrhea, the bronchospasm, and the bradycardia, and the killer bees, and that's how these patients die. They end up drowning in their own secretions. They end up suffocating and not mounting the appropriate tachycardia to sustain their life in this insult that you would expect, and that's usually how these patients die, unless I'm incorrect. Well, the other th so it depends. Um, so there's if you break it down even more, acetylcholine has two different receptor types, right? Symptoms that we're describing are the muscarinic effects, um, and so specifically sludge and um, and uh, the uh, the killer bees describe uh, the muscarinic effects. The nicotinic effects are going to be much more at the neuromuscular and CNS um, effects, and those people are going to have generalized muscle fasciculations or weakness. Um, up to the point of paralysis, which is, and so if this were a, a military attack, then that could also be some means of, um, of mortality or morbidity, uh, as well as seizure. Um, and so um, depending on sort of the nature of the agent and the nature of the exposure and any pretreatment that might occur in a military context, you can, you can see other effects. Yeah, that's exactly right. Keep in mind that acetylcholine is the the synaptic neurotransmitter from the pregangliac neurons to the adrenal medulla. And the output, obviously, from the adrenal is catecholamines, epi and norepi. And the effects of those are not to create meiosis or bradycardia, but medriasis and tachycardia. So the clinical effects seen can be variable. And when we talk the treatment algorithm for treating these patients, we don't focus on the heart. These patients do not have to have bradycardia. They may, and some of the poisoning models that we use, there's marked bradycardia, bradysystolic arrests, but you do not have to have bradycardia. And so the treatment, which has really been well described by Andrew Dawson, Nick Buckley, Michael Edelston, and their Sri Lankan colleagues in several publications over the last decade, focus on the bronchorrhea, the the elimination of rawls or of wet breath sounds and bronchoconstriction as being, along with an appropriate heart rate, as being a endpoint of treatment or a marker of adequate treatment with atropine. Which is something that might be a little unusual to especially our 
American listeners, when you say atropine, you think of old ACLS and using what could be very small doses compared to the volume or the amount of atropine needed to correct a organophosphate toxicity. You know, the treatment is a clinical endpoint until their secretions dry up, not resolution of their uh, bradycardia. So it's, it can quickly exhaust a smaller hospital's resources uh, supply of atropine in order to treat just one of these patients. Yeah, they, talking more about the atropine, the Andrew Dawson, Nick Butley, and Edelston group did interesting literature review on how much atropine is recommended for this, and they looked at their own clinical practice, and how they dose atropine in um, Sri Lanka is they give one or two milligram dose if it's unsure if there is an exposure. If they see no rise in heart rate after one or two milligrams of atropine, then that's kind of de novo evidence that there is acetylcholinesterase inhibitor because most people should have a tachycardic response to one or two milligrams of atropine. And in the poison patient, if they don't see resolution of the pulmonary findings, then they double the dose every few minutes. So they go from two milligrams, a few minutes later they give four or five milligrams, a few minutes later they give 10 milligrams, a few minutes later they give 20 milligrams. So they very rapidly resolve those pulmonary findings, much much more rapidly than you do with most treatment recommendations that you see in older textbooks. And it's important to note that, so so how does atropine work? So it's it's effectively, it's... Um, Anti-muscarinic. No, muscarinic. So it blocks it blocks the acetylcholine receptor, but it it mainly functions at the muscarinic at the muscarinic receptors, um, and so um, that's one of the reasons why atropine is first line therapy. But it's not the only therapy you're going to think about when you see one of these. Well, I mean that gets us into the next point, which is the I'm I'm thinking I'm trying to read Matt's mind, and I'm a terrible mind reader um, that he was kind of leading us into a discussion of uh, 2PAM and the aging at the enzyme. And we're going to, this is going to cause you to have a seizure from college, but, you know, we're talking tertiary folding structure of proteins here and the irreversible binding of an organophosphate to the active site of the acetylcholine esterase will cause its inability to further cleave acetylcholine, if I'm correct. And once you do that to the enzyme, it is no longer functional although still present in the body, so you have effectively cut off that enzyme's ability to function any further permanently. That's right. So there, the enzyme is bound at the active site by the carbonate or the OP, and we're primarily talking about OPs here. That binding is reversible. With, with an antidote such as 2-PAM or obidoxime, other oxime, you can remove the OP from the active site of acetylcholinesterase. If that is not done, then the enzyme can, can become what's called aged, and that's, it's irreversibly bound to uh, phosphate moiety of the OP and is not, you cannot regenerate that enzyme. That enzyme is, is non-functional forever. So the idea is that you treat with atropine, but you also use 2-PAM in order to avoid the aging of the acetylcholinesterase. And it's important, mostly important for military purposes. SOMIN, the most rapidly aging nerve agent, will age acetylcholinesterase within one to two minutes. 
So you have a very short window of time to treat these patients with 2PAM, at least from a military perspective. So this is all well and good and seems to work in vivo, in, or in vitro rather, and makes pharmacologic, toxicologic sense. Interestingly, though, there are several studies out of Valor India primarily, and, and one in Sri Lanka as well, that says that 2PAM may not be any benefit in OP poisoning. In fact, may cause harm. There are other studies that show that 2PAM is beneficial. And in test tube, it works by regenerating the acetylcholinesterase. So the question is, what's the difference? Why do why does 2PAM work sometimes and not other times? And I think the important thing to remember is what I said before, and that is the OPs are a diverse class of chemicals. They are not the same. 2PAM does not work at all, either in vitro or in vivo, for some OPs, such as dimethoate, which is a particularly bad actor in Sri Lanka. However, 2PAM clearly regenerates acetylcholinesterase for other things, such as chlorpyrifos, which is another common one and found in the United States. So if you had a large group of patients who were poisoned with dimethoate, you could use 2PAM as much as you wanted, and you're never going to show a benefit because it absolutely doesn't work. So that is part of the reason why the studies are a little inconsistent with does 2PAM work or not. For the nerve agents, it does seem to work, and that is part of the antidote kit for the U.S. military. I think for our purposes, treating patients, the standard is to use 2PAM, and there are several dosing recommendations, you know, intermittent bolusine, there's a WHO recommendation about infusion rates or infusion amounts. So from if I had a patient today in the emergency department, I would treat them with atropine and 2PAM as well. But there's another antidote, too, and the military has used this, and that is diazepam. You mentioned thinking of the pharmacology of OPs causing you to have a seizure, as you remember your undergraduate days or your med school days. Well, I thought that was actually very appropriate because <laughs> patients do have seizures as well, although the nerve agents clearly cause seizures, cause neuropathology and long-term neurocognitive dysfunction. OP poison patients don't actually seize or have fits that often. Nevertheless, that's led diazepam to be recommended treatment for OP, carbamate, and nerve agent poisoning as well. So I would definitely treat patients with diazepam as well. And it seems like the indications for that in general are, I mean, definitely those with seizures, but also anyone with sort of severe CNS symptoms or toxicity from the exposure. Absolutely. Or anyone that's getting intubated. Yeah. I would definitely use diazepam as well. And you talked about earlier, but, you know, there's no great lab test for this, but an indirect marker of this might be the RBC cholinesterase activity. Well, actually, so, I mean, it's it's actually a really good test. It will tell you the cholinesterase activity, and you can do serum or RBC, although RBC is, is probably a better option, and you can send it off. And you will get a quantitative level of cholinesterase activity. The reality, though, is in pretty much every hospital around the world, by the time it comes back, it's um, more of a... Uh, academic uh, note than anything else. You should not be waiting for the um, acetylcholinesterase activity level to come back before initiating treatment. That's absolutely right. There is a bedside test called the TestMate made by um, a guy in Cincinnati, and it is a bedside spectrophotometer which allows you to determine acetylcholinesterase activity in about one minute from a sample of, I believe it's 10 microliters of blood. 
Andrew Dawson, Nick Butley, and colleagues published a paper in Annals of Emergency Medicine in December of 2011 looking at the accuracy or the precision of the testmate acetylcholinesterase measurement system against the reference standard and found that it was very precise and um, for all the, for the spectrum of poisoning. They didn't use it to guide therapy, however, which is what I think would be an interesting investigation. That is, if you have a patient whose acetylcholinesterase is very, very low, you give them 2-PAM, and then you see that their acetylcholinesterase improves. Well, that tells me that the 2-PAM is doing something. If, however, you saw the acetylcholinesterase did not improve with 2-PAM, then I think that it would be reasonable to say this is an OP that 2-PAM is not effective against and therefore stop therapy with it. Then in, just to theorize, so you don't necessarily, atropine shouldn't affect the acetylcholinesterase activity, right? Because it, it doesn't regenerate any of the enzymes. So the enzyme activity would be the same. That's correct. Okay, but mainly for 2-PAM and assessing its effects. That's right. I think of atropine as putting a Band-Aid on the problem. There's too much acetylcholine, so let's antagonize the acetylcholine receptors. That's the Band-Aid. That's atropine. It doesn't get to the heart of the matter, no pun intended. When we're talking about the uh, clinical syndrome and, and the potential recovery from that, I, I think this is a good chance to mention, though, the intermediate syndrome. Um, with the lipid solubility of these drugs, they have a tendency, uh, maybe bioaccumulates the wrong word, but form a lipid sink um, in the adipose tissue of the patient. So when you have what appears to be clinical recovery, you stop your therapies, withdraw some of your therapies, i.e. intubation, and then the patient spontaneously gets worse, you're seeing a redistribution of the organophosphates that were kind of lying low in the lipid and cause a rebound of their initial presentation. So it's something to be cognizant of. It is. Yes, the inter intermediate syndrome was first described in Sri Lanka. And, or was it India? I can't remember. They're pretty close to each other. Um, it's a the, brilliant name, I have to say. I like it. It was published in the New England Journal, I think it was 1987. And it clearly there is some effect delayed neuromuscular respiratory effect that some patients get. They have a hyperacute cholinergic syndrome. You treat them, they get better from that. And then a couple of days later, they develop this, they develop a progressive weakness. They have trouble breathing. They can move their arms and legs around, but they don't have the strength to lift their head up off a pillow. And those patients are at risk for respiratory failure and prolonged intubation. It's unclear what causes the intermediate syndrome, whether it's agent-specific. Some people, it used to be theorized that it was due to inadequate treatment with oxymes. So no one really knows what causes it, but it is a real manifestation. It has tremendous morbidity in the developing world where ventilator are, ventilators are hard to come by, where intensive care may be lacking. So if you have a patient with this that needs to be intubated for a few weeks, they have a significant morbidity. It's hard to stand bedside with a bag valve mask for several weeks. And that's also the concern, too, would be in a mass casualty exposure. Um, it's not that hard necessarily to treat one patient with this disease, but if you had dozens and dozens of patients who, who come in, all of them needing aggressive intensive therapy with antidotes and monitoring and possible intubation, it can very quickly overwhelm a hospital response. 
That's right. The military, however, has set up some systems where they can simultaneously ventilate a lot of patients using a, a device such as the Oxalator, um, O-X-Y-L-A-T-O-R, uh, which I have used in Sri Lanka to help ventilate patients. So they are looking at that. It, the problem is they're, these devices are driven off of compressed gas, usually compressed oxygen, which is difficult to come by in the developing world. However, in the U.S., it's been recognized as a means to ventilate a lot of people simultaneously. I can see how that would come in handy. In the, in the Tokyo disaster, they, it was uh, interesting. I mean, there were a bunch, a bunch of people that presented via ambulance and paramedics immediately. And I think they tried to, there were a couple hospitals that took the biggest hit, but they tried to sort of um, use uh, mass casualty response to, to divide up some of the, some of the uh, uh, patients. But also because it was along a subway line, you had people that didn't know they were exposed or got delayed toxicity or just felt ill. And so they presented on their own to other hospitals. And then um, some of these people were still contaminated. And so some of the ambulance drivers apparently on route were describing symptoms also because um, the clothing was, uh, was soaked in the uh, nerve agent. And so uh, they actually had to open up their windows uh, when doing this. So I think the first, if you do see a mass casualty exposure, the first thing, the first rule is going to be decontamination and avoiding contamination in your emergency department. Some of the um, uh, physicians who were treating them apparently also became symptomatic. That's right. I believe overall more than 5,000 patients presented for care after the so Tokyo subway attack with around, if I recall, 800 to 1,000 who were truly symptomatic. And the number dead was approximately 20, I believe. Uh, approximately, yeah. And that was actually the second attack. That, that was actually, I mean, the way that they did that was, was pretty ingenious. They had several people on different trains within a few minutes of each other who had the agent in, I believe it was a plastic bag or some sort of small container. And then they punctured the container with a specially designed umbrella um, around the same time and just stepped off the train. And um, because it was so volatile, it just sort of slowly dispersed into the area. And uh, they sort of, I mean, it's, it was uh, truly created a, a wave of terror. And I can only imagine the United States, given our um, tendency towards terror, how what our uh, uh, sick-not-sick ratio and uh, what our surge uh, would be in ED volumes. I can't, was this a homemade nerve agent, or was this was that leftovers? Cult <laughs> <laughs> just, like, just like mom's cult used to make. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Aun Shunrikyo was this, well, it still exists, although it has a different name now, a cult that involved a lot of the intelligentsia and scientists in Japan. So they, actually there's some evidence that they in, investigated making ricin for as a chemical weapon um, and settled on making sarin. They first used it in an attack in Matsumoto outside an apartment complex using it from a van. And I believe it killed five people in that attack. And they were targeting one, apparently one judge who was hearing a case against them. So it was just um, the, I think that's the big concern with, with some of these agents falling into the wrong hands is, um, is they're not always the most logical in their use. It's a horrible way to say it. Yeah, I don't think they're ever logical yeah, in their not, use. Not exactly surgical precision to their uh, effect. Yeah. yeah, I just, yeah, it was sort of, it was probably, I would get to say it was one of the most bizarre hits I've ever heard of. I'll give you that. You know, in, in 
bringing it all together, I think that makes this a lot more relevant. One of the reasons we're talking about it, that is this is a chemical weapon that's out there that's possibly weaponized and has been weaponized in the past. It's wouldn't be unreasonable to say this happens in the United States and that some of the physicians listen to this would see that. And at the same time, some of our international listeners see this on the not infrequent basis with insecticide poisonings. You know, this is a very real toxidrome for them. This is a very real concern for them on a daily basis. So I think both ways, this is a a part of modern medicine, but modern emergency medicine and, and something that we have to think about and talk about and understand. It's part of our lexicon. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. It's something I go to bed at night thinking about and I wake up in the morning thinking about dreams of pesticides. Nope. I can't back you up on that. I'm not going to tell you what I dream about. Yeah. Um, it's not pesticides. Though. Slightly less creepy than <laughs> well, thanks for having me here. It's been uh, great. I love talking about this stuff, so I really appreciate your time and inviting me here. Thank you very much. And thanks for coming, and I hope uh, everybody stays tuned and listens to some more great editions of forthcoming Talks Talk. And that concludes this episode of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for joining me. Once again, Talks Talk is a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter and get more information about our episodes at our website. That's TalksTalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K.org. If there's any particular topics you'd like to hear us talk about, just drop a line uh, by going to our website or emailing us at TalksTalk at TalksTalk.org. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off.